Well, the end is in sight. We've spent, as Annie has said, the last five Sundays past journeying together through the four chapters of Paul's letter to the Philippians. The letter of joy, as we have come to call it. So today we come to our sixth and final instalment, chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. The final verses of the book in a talk that I've entitled, Joy in Contentment. I'd like to start by introducing you all to an extraordinary individual who maybe a few of you have heard of, and perhaps even fewer know a little bit about. I have to say that I've always found um, the name a bit of a struggle, his name a bit of a struggle to get past, um, because it conjures up in my mind um, an image of some sort of mythical beast, half parrot, half fish, because the name of the man in question is Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop in the second century of Smyrna in modern-day Turkey. It's believed that he was a personal disciple of the Apostle John, who, uh, of course, wrote the fourth gospel. Um, So he had a remarkably close spiritual lineage, if you like, to the person of Jesus. He was a man of great integrity. He was instrumental in the growth of the early church, but what especially marks him out is the manner of his death. Polycarp was arrested on the orders of a Roman governor, a Roman proconsul. He was accused, not surprisingly, given that he was a bishop, of being a Christian. And he was tied to a stake and told that if he didn't recant his faith, he would be burned to death. I don't know about you, but I think at that point, uh, with the best will in the world, um, I may well have crossed my fingers and uh, said whatever got me out of a rather tight corner. But we do know from an eyewitness account that this isn't what Polycarp did. He absolutely refused to recant his faith and he declared to the crowd of pagans come to see this spectacle. Eighty-six years I have served Christ and he has done me no evil. How can I curse my king who saved me? And then we might expect that Polycarp would perhaps throw some insults at those who were about to murder him, but he didn't do that either. What he said was this, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment. I bless and glorify you in them. And then he died in those flames. How on earth did he have the presence of mind and the spiritual integrity to say something like that when facing certain death? Unlike us, Paul knows what sort this sort of thing was like. At the start of his letter to the Philippians, he makes it clear to them that he's been going through the mill. He's under house arrest in Rome, he's been been unfairly imprisoned, he's been hounded out of cities, he's been stoned, he's been virtually killed on occasion, he's now placed in chains. And yet, at the end of this letter, Paul is able to say to them, 
whatever the circumstances, I have learned to be content. This is what Polycarp had. This is what Paul had. And I suggest this is what you and I seek too. To be content. To find joy in contentment, whatever the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Remember that as Bronwyn shared with us, um, those of you um, who were either here or have caught up on the podcast, or you can catch up on the podcast if you wish, um, Bronwyn shared with us in um, uh, the service um, this week, um, last month, joy is not the same as happiness. It's not swayed by our external circumstances, but it's independent of them and it's grounded elsewhere. So what's going to give us this contentment then? We're all searching for it, aren't we? We want to be content. We try maybe to find it in, oh, I don't know, um, latest dietary fads in cars, in holidays, in um, some of the groups that go on in the TCC, the amazing um, Scottish country dancing, the yoga, the Pilates, the art, whatever it may be. Maybe even at times for some of us in listening to Test Match Special. But what Paul seems to be offering to us here in this text is very different. And he starts with this, that we won't find contentment unless we recognise that there's a problem in our lives that perhaps we simply don't see. And then once we've found and acknowledged this problem, the solution available to us comes, I suggest, in a couple of different parts. The first half of which is more obvious, and the second, um, again, perhaps we don't um, fully see that. I'll expand on that uh, over the coming moments. I hope it makes sense. Well, the problem with the problem that we have is that we just don't know that we have it. But if we go to the start of this morning's reading, Paul helps us to find it. Because right away he says to his Philippian brothers and sisters, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. The word that Paul uses here for contentment isn't the usual one that will be used in, in, in Greek, um, but it has a, a, a particular sense, and, and, and it's obviously a very deliberate use of the word uh, by him, because it, it has a sense of being um, really filled or satisfied, almost as if you've, you've, had, you know, you've had, you had your Sunday lunch and you've had a couple of extra roast potatoes as well, and you really physically can't fit any more in. It's, it's that sort of slightly full contentment. And Paul means it here not just physically but spiritually and emotionally as well. It's meant to have um, the sense of lacking or needing nothing. So the problem that perhaps we don't know that we have is that we just want to fill our lives, fill to that sort of level in our lives with stuff, maybe the latest car, uh, just that little bit faster, a little bit sleeker than the one we already have, maybe this season's clothes, keeping our fingers on the fashion pulse, 
We want to be full. We want to be satisfied. But this is a faulty understanding of contentment. Paul gives us some qualifiers about the sort of contentment that he's talking about, particularly in verse 12, and he says this, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I think that most of us would think that contentment is achieved in, in the meeting of a lack of something that we want, a sort of filling in of, the, of a hole that we need or we think we need to fill. <clears throat> if we all think back to our childhoods, maybe it's the, it's the happiness that comes with the receiving of that Christmas toy we've been going on about to our parents for months and months and months. But that's not contentment because... As we all know, we've all experienced, after a few days, the luster of that present wears off. We become bored with it, and we want another one. We move on to, to something different, or move on to another hole to be filled. It opens up, waiting to be filled in that way. It's a momentary sort of high. It's just like the, the eating of a, a delicious slice of cake from last weekend's Watton Book Show or the Aslockton Coffee Shop next Friday. The sugar rush gives us a fantastic boost. It makes us feel as though we can take on anything and then all the carbohydrates wear off as quickly as they came and we're left um, crashing and more tired and feeling more empty than before. So Paul is saying that when we get what we want in those times of plenty, there's a real skill that's needed to be content in those moments. Because we've got a huge tendency to throw our hope and our joy into things, to try and make these things the basis of our contentment, the centre of our lives. There's almost a sort of psychological principle behind it, that whenever we achieve a, a particular level, there's always something additional that we want. It's like one of those video games, isn't it, where you go on to level two, level three, level four, yeah, and there's always another one. John D. Rockefeller, who was generally, or is generally considered, if you sort of marry up all of the, the values of money at the, at the time, uh, everyone has existed. He's generally considered to be the richest man of all time. When asked how much money is enough money, he famously replied, just a little bit more. If you like, the needle always keeps on moving that little bit further round the dial. So this is a problem that we don't even realise um, maybe is a problem because we'll never find contentment in all of those ups and the downs unless we're able to back away from engaging our hearts in things more importantly in the plenty than in the want so if this is the problem what's the solution well there's a first part to the solution that I think um, maybe is relatively obvious and the second part is perhaps um, a bit more hidden the obvious part first. Let's look at what St Paul says about this in verse 13 of our reading. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. 
That's possibly one of the most misquoted or misapplied verses in the entire Bible because people think it can relate to anything at all that they need strength to overcome. Any challenge that they've got, through him who gives me strength, I can do all of this, whatever that this may be. But it's not a general phrase. And it, uh, to take it as such is to, is to take it out of context. It specifically talks about I can do all this, of which the all this is being content. So Paul is saying that I can always be content through him who gives me strength. That implies, Paul tells us, that we need strength in some way in order that we can attain contentment in our lives. So when good things happen, when we do receive that amazing Christmas present, it takes strength for us not to place all our hopes and our desires in that thing, or indeed to keep on pursuing the next, and then the next, and then the next. It takes strength. It takes the slightly surprising, I always think, um, gift of the Holy Spirit from the list of those gifts in uh, chapter 5 of Galatians. The slightly surprising gift of self-control. It takes strength not to keep pushing on to the next thing, perhaps especially since so much of today's narrative of, of life is based on precisely such language. When I'm uh, with, the, uh, with the two schools, in two primary schools in, in our parishes, um, there's lots of language in, in those environments um, as there is reflected in, in social media about shooting for the stars and be the best person you can be, the best child you can be. Follow your heart, pursue your dreams. And you will, according to the world's view, find happiness if you throw yourself into this pursuit of stuff, of things, of, uh, of the next thing. In a way, there was a group of ancient philosophers who found an answer to this most modern of problems. Their name finds its way into our modern language too, in a slightly um, different uh, sense. These Stoics based their approach to life entirely around avoiding all of these sorts of things. They withdrew from much of life as a means of self-protection. Um, if I can update it into the, into the words of uh, Disney's Frozen, <coughs> many, of, uh, many of you will probably have, have seen, um, uh, Elsa there um, is told to conceal and don't feel her, her special power that she has of freezing stuff. And she keeps it hidden from everyone so that she doesn't um, have the consequences of that. But to do that, as she finds, is um, if we want to keep ourselves from everything out there, if we want to avoid um, falling into the trap of trying to find our contentment in stuff, and we withdraw from the world, we not only keep our hearts unbroken, but we lock them away. They become hardened. They become impenetrable. We remove from them any possibility of joy. That's not a solution. So what is the second part of the solution to the problem that Paul identifies, this secret to which he refers in verse 12 that connects with the strength 
that he's already named. Well, Paul says this secret is learned. It's hard to acquire. It's not something that you simply get overnight. You don't wake up the next morning and think, oh, right, got that secret. And then in verse 19, he goes on to say this. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say God will meet all your needs, period. Because all of my needs, all of the stuff that I want, as we've just seen, doesn't fulfil. All your needs, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, means the salvation that's found in him. It means that all your needs are met from the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Whatever you may or may not do, that whatever you may or may not achieve or earn or not earn, you are already an adopted child of God. And you have a guaranteed inheritance in him, just like Jesus himself. In Christ Jesus, in Christ, means that our Heavenly Father delights in each one of you, in me just as much as he delights in Jesus himself. In Christ means that we can find deep joy in contentment, no matter what the circumstances are that we find ourselves in. Because we are grounded in Christ. And the strength that Paul identifies as a crucial element of this is not only to help us refrain from placing our trust in the stuff that can't satisfy, but it's also to help us rejoice in the one true treasure that's found in Christ. Whether that's in times of happiness and celebration, or the moments of trial and difficulty and pain in life. Which are often where, strangely, surprisingly, God's most profound love and comfort and peace and even joy is encountered. I'm going to draw us to a close by looking very briefly at what Jesus said himself about such things in Luke chapter 10. In that chapter, Jesus sends out um, the 72, as they are known. His, he has the, the 12 disciples, and then there's a, his sort of inner ring, and then there's a, another ring of those who are uh, next closest to him, who spend lots of time with him, but are, are not the, the core 12 disciples. And Jesus sends out the 72 to go ahead of him, uh, of him into every town and village that he is about to visit. And um, he tells them um, to go uh, and minister in those villages. Um, and uh, we read that uh, these 72 returned with joy. And they said to Jesus, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. An extraordinary thing being sent out. And that 
um, is the, the ministry that they, in Jesus' name, are able to carry out to those communities. But Jesus replies to them as follows. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's not saying that they can't celebrate, that they have uh, driven out these demons from, from those who have been afflicted by them. They clearly can do that. There's so much to celebrate in that. But like our contemporary examples, if these 72 were to find their joy in what they've managed to do, then when maybe the next time Jesus sends them out, they're unable to heal the sick. They're unable maybe to cast out those evil spirits. Their bubble might burst. They would go on striving and striving and striving for the next one, trying to fill that hole, trying to feel, fill that need maybe to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to go one better, to do more. Rather, Jesus tells them that they should rejoice that their names are written in heaven. Do you know that when you go out from here today, that you are, so to speak, already in? You are already in Christ. You are already, or you have already, your names written in heaven. Do you meditate on that fact, on that knowledge? Do you worship the Lord for that? That in Christ, like Polycarp and like Paul, you've already been given the joy in contentment that comes from knowing in your heart that your name is written with that of Jesus in heaven. That your identity is in Christ, the one who set his heart on you, who rejoices in you, in each one of you, before you ever have rejoiced in him who has loved you before you ever began to love him. Jesus has set his heart on you. Will you set your heart on him? Because that's where joy in contentment. As Bronwyn first told us, J, Jesus first, O, others next, Why yourself last. That J-O-Y, joy in contentment, whatever our circumstances truly comes from. In the joyful name of Jesus Christ, we pray.